0: we look at Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be uh, focusing our attention on verses 18 through 25. verses 18 to 25, we see the birth of Jesus covered from the perspective of Joseph. Joseph is the betrothed husband of Jesus' earthly father, or he is Jesus' earthly father. Uh, He is uh, betrothed to be married to Mary. I suppose we could call him a fiancé, but as we'll see throughout the text, it's a little bit more than that. But as we see the birth of Christ covered from Joseph's perspective in these verses, what I want us to see more importantly is that this text explains not just the circumstances around Jesus' birth, but it explains why He was born. There is a particular and powerful statement of Jesus' mission in the middle of these verses. Throughout the month of December, we're setting our thoughts on Jesus, who is the baby in the manger. And so last week we asked the question, Who is he? This week we're asking the question, Why did he come? Next week, Lord willing, we're going to ask the question, what did he do? And then at the end of December, after Christmas, we're going to consider why it matters and ask the question, how are we supposed to respond to that? So last week we asked, who is Jesus? And we saw from John chapter five, that he is the son of God, the son of the father in heaven. He is equal with God, the father in his nature, his work, his power and authority and honor. He's the Lord over all, and He is worthy of our worship. Today, we ask the question, why did He come? That is, why did this eternal Son of God, the all-powerful Creator of the universe, who is and was eternally complete and fulfilled without having to come to earth? Why did he take on human flesh and dwell among sinful mankind? We learn that as we look at Matthew chapter 1. So look at the text with me now and follow along as I read starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. History has many records of notable births. It's not unusual for us to hear reports of a baby born on New Year's Day. I suppose reports of that will come soon. Or it's not uncommon for us to hear about leap year babies, born on February 29th. I once heard a report about twins, who were born right at the turn of a new year, so that the first one came out on December 31st and the second one came out on January 1st. Can you imagine that, having a twin with different birthdays? Throughout history, some births have been considered noble because of the nobility of the family into which the child is born. Some have been notable because of the unusual circumstances surrounding the child's birth. But when we consider all the births of history and whichever ones are notable and which ones aren't, there is no birth in the history of mankind as notable as the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Savior. His birth was prophesied more than a millennium before it occurred. And it had been prophesied more since. And that birth continues to mark our calendars now, some 2,000 years later. As far back as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin, as God pronounced his curse on all the earth, he gave a message of hope. And that message was that there would be a savior born of a woman who would undo the curse and make all things right again. You see, salvation, redemption, and restoration are prominent themes throughout all of Scripture throughout the entire story from beginning to end. And the arrival of Jesus into this world as the Savior is the centerpiece of those themes and of that story. And so Jesus' birth is not just notable because it happened in Bethlehem, and it's not just notable because they were in a stable, and it's not just notable because there was an angel, it's notable because of the mission that Jesus came to fulfill through that birth and through the life that would follow. And so Jesus' birth is most important because of its place in God's plan of salvation For his people. Now, the circumstances of his birth are indeed unique, and that's a bit of an understatement. Perhaps the most unique aspect, humanly speaking, of the birth of Jesus is that his mother, Mary, was a virgin. So, humanly speaking, this is an impossible birth. It is a mystery, it is something that has confounded God's people through all the centuries, and it has confused unbelievers. It has become a stumbling block for many in their faith. There is no human explanation for it. But this text explains that the virgin birth, the virgin conception and the virgin birth, are indeed a divine intervention from God himself. And along the way, this text tells us why it happened. Who this Jesus is and why he came into the world. So in these verses, as the story unfolds, we learn what the mission of Jesus was. Why he was born. And as the story unfolds, it unfolds in four stages that we're going to look at today. That tell us something about the birth of Christ and why it was important. So, notice first of all with me this morning, Christ's mission begun. Now, if you're astute and you're paying attention, you might automatically object to that title being applied to the birth of Jesus. Why? Because the mission of Christ began in eternity past. This has been his plan all along. So, when I say Christ's mission begun, I mean his earthly mission, the earthly phase of his salvation story. And we find that in verses 18 and 19. This account introduces the unique nature of Jesus' birth, and it introduces a serious problem into the story. I love the story of Scripture, and that all along the way, God seems to infuse the story with impossible situations just to remind us that he is capable of the impossible and the same thing happens here he creates a problem if you will and then sovereignly solves it and explains it this story is told from joseph's perspective and from joseph's perspective mary's pregnancy appears to create a huge dilemma we'll see that as these Verses develop verse 18 begins now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way that word translated birth here is the same word that is used at in verse one of Matthew chapter one genealogy it means beginning or origin or descent or birth or existence why is it important because Matthew who is the human author of this text, Matthew is writing to present Jesus in two ways. He presents him first according to his human, earthly genealogy, and then he turns around to present him from his divine, heavenly genealogy, or his heavenly origin. So in verses 1 through 17, he gives the earthly lineage of Jesus. But then in verse 18, turns around and, and he begins to explain it from a heavenly perspective. So he says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't really know much about Mary, and we don't know much about Joseph in terms of who they are and what their lives were truly like. We know a few details here and there, but I think it's intentional that Scripture keeps the lives of these two individuals vague because as we've already seen in history, it is very easy to venerate the wrong people in these stories. We don't know much about Mary. We do know enough to see that she was a godly and virtuous woman. She was righteous. Luke chapter 1 shows us her godly character in response uh, and her faith in response to God's message to her that she would give birth to the Messiah. We see her submission. We see in spite of all the uncertainty and all the conflict that's going to come because of that uh, in her own life that she submits humbly and worships the Lord. Likewise, we know even less about Joseph. We know nothing about his background except for his family line. We know something of his trade and where he lived. But again, we know enough to see that he was a man of character and a man of godliness. Now, while we don't know many details about Mary or Joseph, as I said, we know enough to know something about their character, and we can also assume from the context that they were also both very young. Verse 18 tells us they were betrothed. That's sort of like an engagement, but it's more official than that. This isn't just a A loose agreement that, hey, yeah, as long as the circumstances work out, we're going to get married one day. In that culture, if they were betrothed, they were considered married in every way except basically the physical relationship. It was during that time that the the husband would often go off to prepare a place for his bride and for him to live together so he would build a house or whatever it was that he needed to do and then he would come back and he would he would uh, they would consummate that marriage together and then she would go to be his wife in their home that something like that is going on during these periods but this betrothal period in that culture happens often in the teenage years especially from the perspective of the woman. It is quite possible that Mary is in her mid-teens here. I'm not saying that's the way to go. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's what the culture did back then. And Joseph, he could have been around that age. Likely he was a little older, but still both very young. Now, after this introduction, verse 18 goes on to tell us that what happens in the story happens before they came together. Again, before they had had the physical intimacy of marriage. In other words, Mary was still a virgin. There is no natural way for her to be pregnant, okay? That's important. And yet, we are told in the text that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, that phrase, she was found, doesn't mean that there was some sort of cover-up, that she tried to to hide this as long as possible and hope nobody noticed. That's not what's going on here. In fact, the timeline of all of this, I'm sure Mary told Joseph long before she began to show and it became obvious that she was pregnant. But here we see it plain as day. Mary had conceived a child. But how? How does that happen? Right? How did she conceive. All we are told in this text is that it was from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Mary, still a virgin, becomes pregnant. And we say, impossible. It can't be. You can imagine what the villagers at Nazareth would have thought when Mary began to show that she was pregnant and explained she had not been immoral. She had not had physical intimacy. What would your reaction be? Okay, Mary... Let's talk about biology. That's not how this works, right? Impossible. And so we look at the text and we say, it's impossible. She couldn't conceive as still a virgin. So this must be an exaggeration. This must be symbolic language of some sort, right? Oh, it means she was pure. It means she was young. What what does it mean? Well, it means exactly what the scriptures teach. But you can see why this doctrine of the virgin birth is a contested doctrine, can't you? You can see why it is a doctrine that is rejected by many, some who even claim to be Christians. Yet this teaching of the virgin birth of Jesus is central and it is indispensable to the Christian faith because it is essential that this baby who is born of woman be born of the Holy Spirit. You see, we can't do away with this. If this is just a normal human union going on here, then Jesus is just a normal human being. And if he is just a normal human being, then he is not qualified to die for your sins or for mine. So this is indispensable to Christianity. And if it is indispensable to Christianity, is it any wonder then that it is one of the most resisted and contested and rejected doctrines of our faith? And if the evil one cannot refute the facts, which he can't, then the next best thing is to twist the story, which he has done effectively, as we see every Christmas season. He makes the story common or cliche or even fanciful. Have you ever noticed how much the Christmas season is marked by fairy tale and how much of those fairy tales get blurred into the Christmas story from Scripture? That is why, ironically, in a world that by and large has rejected God, and rejected jesus and rejected the bible can still enjoy christmas music that is christian have you ever noticed that the gospel is played over the sound systems of most commercial establishments every day this time of year why Because for many people, Jesus and his virgin birth are just a traditional holiday tale, like Santa Claus, Rudolph, and Frosty the Snowman. That's how the world views it. That is the mentality of our world today. And the result is that it has inoculated our culture to Jesus and to Christianity. And that is why we, as Christians, who take our faith seriously, who believe the Bible, who who look to Scripture as our authority and turn our eyes to Jesus, that is why we need to make every effort to keep Christ at the center of our holiday celebrations and traditions. Is it wrong to talk about those other things? No, it's not wrong, but we must make it clear Parents in our own homes, we need to make it clear what is the difference between the fairy tale and the truth. Now, moving on. Verse 18 proclaims the virgin conception of Jesus in Mary by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and that leads to a particular problem, a particular dilemma in everyone's mind. As I've already mentioned, Mary is pregnant. She's not yet married. Humanly speaking, there's only one explanation for that, and that's that she has been unfaithful to her betrothed husband. Either that or she's been immoral with him. The only question then is, who's the father? Joseph or someone else? And either way, it's bad for both of them. So whether her pregnancy was public knowledge or, yet or not, at this point, it is going to become a major problem. And in verse 19, we see that problem from Joseph's perspective. And now he seems to be in a hard spot. This is what we read. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And yes, even though it was just the betrothal period for him to put her away is considered a breaking of the marriage, a divorce let well, think about Joseph here. This has got to be devastating, right? I mean, they're married in every way but the physical union, and now it appears that Mary has been unfaithful. What is he to think? What is he supposed to do? Well, the text says that he was a just man. That is, he's a righteous, and he is a godly man, and on top of that, he is a devout Jew. And in the Jewish culture, and according to the Jewish law, to ignore this would be to break the law of God and to imply that he is somehow complicit in it, if not actually being the father himself. And so in Joseph's mind, he can't do that. There really, in his mind, were only two courses of action he could take. One, he could take her back to, his father's, to her father's house where the men of the village would likely take her out and stone her to death. Or, there had been a loophole that had been developed by tradition in the Jewish culture that would have allowed him to put her away in a private way. So that even if this would be found out eventually, he could save Mary from a major public spectacle. And so, that's the option Joseph chooses. The text says he's a just man. He wants to be righteous. He wants to be careful. He wants to be gracious. And so he shows grace and compassion to Mary to, by putting her, by intending to put her away quietly. But this is a major problem for Joseph. And from a human point of view, it is a major shock and a crushing blow to him personally. He would not have come to this decision easily. He wrestled with it. He was in great Turmoil. This is a big problem. But notice this it is only a big problem for Mary and Joseph at this point. This is not a problem for God. In fact, for God, this is going to be the preparation for a wonderful plan, for a spectacular gift, for the giving of good news of salvation to all mankind. And so we see Christ's mission begun. It appears to be a problem at first, but we find it is not a problem. It's just impossible for mankind to grasp. And once again, we find that God's plan of salvation hangs on the need for something that only God can do. And it has begun. And God is beginning to do that work even here in the midst of this dilemma. And that leads us then to the next section of the text, verses 21, or 20 and 21, where we see Christ's mission explained. Joseph has a dream in these verses. And when I say dream, I don't mean crazy dreams like, oh, I had too much caffeine before bed and crazy stuff happens in the mind. No, this was a direct intervention from God sending him a message This was a vision that God had given to Joseph. And it brings a whole new perspective to what is going on. While Joseph is wrestling with what to do, but before he can follow through with his plan, God intervenes and tells him there is something happening here that he cannot see and that is beyond his comprehension. And so in verse 20, we read this. As he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It's an angelic messenger sent from God with a message for Joseph. The angel says this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? The angel calls him son of David. Why is that important? Because here this angel appears to Joseph in his time of heartbreak and struggle. And what he calls him points his attention to the royal lineage going back to King David himself. That'll get your attention, won't it? pointing back to his family heritage, possibly even reminding Joseph of the promise that God had made to David, that there would always be one of his descendants sitting on his throne. And there's a hint to us as we see this, that what the angel is about to say and what is happening in this text has to do with that promised descendant to sit on David's throne. All right, so now he has our attention and it sets the stage for what the angel is about to tell him. And the angel tells him not to go through with the divorce because things are not what they seem. He says it's okay for, her to, for him to marry her because she has indeed been pure and faithful. In fact, her pregnancy is a work of God himself. And the implication of this is, Joseph, hang on. Go through with this marriage because what's going on in this pregnancy is something, there there is a purpose for this situation. And there is a purpose for this child. And that's the key idea. Joseph, don't be afraid. There's a purpose for all of this. And so in verse 21, the angel tells Joseph what that purpose is. And here we come to the centerpiece of the text. This is what the angel says. She will bear a son. Okay, there's a gender reveal for you. But it's even more important than that. He's going somewhere with this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Whoa. Now, there is a birth announcement, right? This is the crux of the whole passage. This is the point of it all. This verse is summarizing the entire purpose and mission of Jesus' life and his death. This is why Jesus came into the world. You see that? He didn't come here just to be an example of good human love. Although he was that. He came here to save his people from their sins. Now notice that the angel says, she will bear a son. That doesn't sound all that crazy to us to say something like that, because after all, she's the one carrying the child. Husbands, don't ever claim that you delivered a child. Okay, The wife does that. But this is important, that, she, that the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son. He, the angel doesn't say, you will have a son. And there's a reason for that in this culture. Scripture never calls Jesus the son of Joseph. And that's significant because in that, in that culture, a son is not normally identified by his mother's name. He's identified by the father's name, the earthly father. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Now, he would serve in a certain way as an earthly father to him legally, but he is not Jesus' true father. But to be identified by his mother's name is unusual, and it signifies that there is something unusual about this child, something unique. And once again, it reinforces the teaching that Jesus was born of a virgin. So the angel tells Joseph that Mary will have a son, and that Joseph's responsibility as the head of that family is to name the child Jesus. Do you know what that name means? It means Jehovah saves. Now, it was a fairly common name in that culture. It is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Common name, and that name was used commonly because it was given as an anticipation of the coming of the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. But the difference here is that the name is prescribed not as an anticipation of the coming Messiah, but as a fulfillment of it. The announcement is coming from the angel that God's promise is being fulfilled. And so you will name him Jesus. In other words, the angel is telling Joseph that this child of Mary's is the promised Savior. And in case he didn't catch it from the name, to be sure to remove all doubt and all ambiguity, the angel adds that as the child's name is, so will he do. He will save his people from their sins. Everything about Jesus' person and everything about Jesus' life is centered on that mission. Let us always remember that the celebration of the birth of Jesus is never a celebration of His birth alone. It is the celebration of a much bigger picture. What makes the birth of Christ so special is that it brought God the Son to earth, So that he would die in our place, so that we could be saved from the penalty and the power of sin. This name, Jesus, is a powerful name, for it is the name of salvation. And there is no other name, there is no other person by which we are to be saved. He came. To save his people from their sins and that brings us then to the third stage of our text in verses 22 and 23 where we see christ's mission confirmed this is where we see something of the historical significance of what is going on here because now the birth of christ is going to be set into its historical context i've already pointed out that this pregnancy is part of a much bigger picture Matthew, the human author of this text then, explains that bigger picture by placing the angel's message into the context of Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What prophet? Isaiah. Isaiah. And in verse 23, he quotes, from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds this little note about Emmanuel, which means God with us. This Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah is about the Savior. In other words, Matthew isn't making this stuff up. This wasn't a legend that came around during Jesus' life. As wonderful and beyond comprehension as this this is about Jesus, it should be believable because it had been prophesied for hundreds of years leading up to this birth. It had been planned. It had been promised from the beginning. And as we'll see, Joseph did believe it. Now, I wish we had time to study Isaiah 7.14 this morning. There are many scholars who debate the meaning or the translation of the word virgin in this verse. And many will say that, well, the word means young woman. The young woman will conceive. Now, it can mean that. There is precedent for that. But when you look at the context and when you look at how this word is normally used in a context like this, it is clear that the word is intended to mean virgin that's the case here, and especially we understand that when you look at the the response of surprise and wonder at what happens in Mary's life, we all get excited when uh, when a mother gives birth to a child, but we don't get excited like this. There is something unusual going on. The virgin conceives. Now... Notice that Isaiah's prophecy calls him, what's what's the name it uses? Emmanuel. And you say, wait, that's not what they named him. They named him Jesus. They didn't name him Emmanuel. Well, remember, in that culture, names mean something. They're meant to communicate a mission or a characteristic or something, especially when it comes to prophecy. They're meant to communicate something about the person. And so in this case, Emmanuel is not a formal name, but it is a title and it is a description of what this child will do and who he is. But what does it mean? Matthew tells us it means God with us. And so here we have two names, two descriptions used of this child. First of all, Emmanuel. It is a title used to describe who Jesus is. What is the characteristic of Emmanuel? It is God with us. That's unheard of in world religions. God with us. And then the other title or name is Jesus, and that is his formal name, and it describes what he does. Not just God with us, but what does he do among us? He saves his people from their sins. This is who Jesus is. This is why he came to this earth. He is God who came to this earth to save sinners. Now just stop there and let that truth wash over you for a minute. God stepping down to earth to save sinful people. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a huge deal. In John chapter 1, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We read that whoever did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And in John chapter 8, Jesus himself teaches that he is the light of the world. What does that mean? Look at perfect and holy God in comparison to wretched and sinful man, and you will see something of our dangerous and eternally devastating position, right? What does all of this mean then? It means that the answer to man's greatest problem and the provision for man's greatest need has been supplied. In the Lord Jesus Christ to the birth of this child. Friends, that is glorious news. There is no greater news. It is the one message of true hope for all people. The, the world likes to sing about peace on earth, goodwill toward men, as a nebulous vague thought, as if it were something we can accomplish on our own. But have you noticed? We try and try and try and try, and it never seems to work. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. Where does that thought of peace on earth, goodwill toward men come from? It comes from the angels. And what were the angels talking about? Salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the message of hope. Because of sin, all mankind, every one of us, are by nature alienated from God. We are lost. We are destined for eternal judgment. That is ultimate darkness. And it permeates this world, and it permeates every man's heart to this day. But there is good news. There is the greatest news that comes out of that darkness and it is this, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God came to earth. God dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. And then He bore God's wrath in our place on the cross, so that all who believe in Him will not perish but would be reconciled to God and have eternal life. Why did Jesus come? He came to save sinners. He came to save sinners like you and like me. We sang about it all morning today. Christ was born to save. All this is wrapped up in this story of Jesus' birth and all of its details. It's glorious news. But then the question is going to be this, what is Joseph going to do now? The fact is, Joseph is still betrothed to this woman who's gotten pregnant, apparently without the help of of an earthly man. And now there's going to be a problem on their hands. So what is he going to do? He's gotten this message, this dream. He's gotten... The explanation, and that brings us then finally to verses 24 and 25, where we see Christ's mission followed. This is the obedience of Joseph. Most certainly, Joseph does not fully understand what's going on here. I mean, who would? right? Even after the dream. Okay, it'll make a little bit more sense, but really? They don't know what lies ahead. But Joseph is a godly man. And without hesitation, he is going to follow the word of the Lord anyway. So look at verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Joseph wakes up and he has a fresh look on this whole situation. Mary has not been unfaithful, but she is the object of a special display of God's grace. And she is being used of God to bring the Savior into the world to fulfill his centuries of prophecy, and to continue God's redemptive plan. It's a big deal. Mary is not to be cast off. She is to be honored and protected by her husband. So Joseph, rather than divorcing her, he marries her, as he was told. And certainly he knows what this is going to mean. This is going to have scandalous implications, He and Mary will be objects of scorn in their society. They will never fully live it down, and many will never really understand the truth. In fact, later on in Jesus' ministry, he is accused of being an illegitimate child. That's a scandal, that's a a shadow that followed him all the days of his life here on earth. And Joseph knows that, Mary knows that, but God was with them. And God was leading them. And so Joseph is all in. Let come what may. Man, would that we had more people with that level of commitment in our world today, right? So Joseph Joseph once again turns his eyes toward his wife. But notice verse 25. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. They did not have their physical relationship until after the baby was born. Was that required? Was that commanded by the angel? I don't remember seeing it anywhere. I don't know that that was a specific command. But it is important because it reinforces and confirms the fact that Mary was unquestionably a virgin. You cannot point to Joseph and say he's the father. There's no room for doubt. But then, sure enough, as the passage concludes, Mary gives birth, and Joseph called his name Jesus, just as the angel had commanded him. Obedience by faith. No arguments, no debates, no reservations. Let come what may. It's a good example for us, don't you think? It's a good model for us to follow. Let come what may. May we be people who follow the commands and the directions and the plans of God. Without question. Well, here it is. The account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And right there in the middle of it, at the climax of the passage, we see the purpose of it all. Don't miss this, because if we miss this purpose, then we miss the whole point of the Christmas season. that God might dwell among us and save his people from their sins. By taking on human flesh, while being truly God and truly man, all at the same time, this child, this Jesus, is able to reveal God to man, and at the same time represent man before God. No human being can do that. Because he is truly God, he can represent God to man. Because he is truly man, he can can represent man to God. And he can reconcile us through his cross. It is the only way he can truly be the Savior. And that is exactly what his purpose was. We read in 1 John 4, verse 14, We have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. What that tells us? It tells us the world needs saving. You need saving. I need saving. And God has made a way. He's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us right here and right now? It means that though we are great sinners, Christ is a great Savior, and he has provided for us a way to be saved from our sins and to have peace with God. It doesn't matter what else you accumulate or accomplish in this world. If you do not have peace with God, it is all wasted. It's all of nothing. This is the greatest need. This is the most important thing in your life. Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ? I want to close with the words of one preacher who summarized this all so well. He says this, Jesus was none other than God in human flesh. And Matthew tells us he came to dwell with the sick to heal them. He came to dwell with the demon possessed to liberate them, with the poor in spirit to bless them, with the care ridden to free them from care, with the lepers to cleanse them, with the diseased to cure them, with the hungry to feed them, with the handicapped to restore them. But most of all, he says that he came to dwell with the lost in order that he might seek and save them. Emmanuel, God with us, infinitely rich, became poor, assumed our human nature, entered our sin-polluted atmosphere without ever being tainted by it, took our guilt, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was wounded with our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, went to heaven to prepare a place for us, sent His Spirit to dwell in our hearts, right now makes intercession for us and will someday come to take us to be with Him. No wonder the Apostle Paul said through his poverty, we are made rich. What did Jesus come to do? It's nothing short of all of that. And it's summarized in those words from the angel he will save his people from their sins. As we celebrate Christmas, does your heart rejoice in God as Mary proclaimed? Or does it rejoice in something else? There's a lot of us to enjoy about the Christmas season. But does it rejoice in Christ? Is Christ your Savior? This is His mission. Are you following His mission? Is Christ your highest joy? My prayer for us is that we would rejoice above all in the great riches we have in Him. That nothing else would be our treasure. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Him and followed Him, followed after Him, I urge you today to repent, to turn, to look to Him as your highest joy and as your Savior who will give you peace with God. There is no greater joy. There is no greater treasure. And Scripture promises that all who call on His name will be saved. And in Him, you will find peace with God. And you will have the greatest of all gifts and the greatest of all joys. Let's pray together.